Hello and welcome to the Ethics in Action podcast. I am your guest host, Alex Stubbs, a philosopher and postdoctoral fellow at the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. This podcast is part of a mini-series on the future of work, guest hosted by myself and James Hughes, Executive Director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and a bioethicist and sociologist who serves as the Associate Provost for Institutional Research, Assessment, and Planning for the University of Massachusetts, Boston. In this series, we'll dive deep into some of the most pressing topics of our time regarding work, the influence of automation on the future of work, the appeal and purpose of work, its connection to meaningful living, the harms of the work ethic, and the idea of a shortened work week. We'll also tackle the issue of alienation in the workplace and discuss innovative policy proposals that could help us navigate the ever-changing landscape of 21st century work. We're happy to have you join us on the Ethics in Action podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our mini-series for the Ethics in Action podcast on work. Today, we're very happy to be joined by Andrea Veltman, who is a professor of philosophy at James Madison University and author of the book Meaningful Work, which is the primary topic of today's podcast. So, Andrea, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm really, I'm excited to be having this conversation today, in part because I think one of the dominant themes of our new post-pandemic world is this reevaluation of the meaning of work in our lives. And now your book, Meaningful Work, which came out in 2016, obviously predates the pandemic, but I think we're sort of seeing it all in, in, in a new light. So I want to just start out by sort of asking, how have you seen the conversation about work changing over the past few years, given the realities of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Well, I've seen quite a bit of discussion of essential work, what counts as essential work uh, and what doesn't. Um, I've also seen a lot of new discussion in the direction of the possibility of a post-work society, um, especially with an increasing um, technological advancements, automation and AI. Um, I myself am somewhat skeptical about uh, moving toward an entirely post-work society. Um, I can see that <clears throat> we may be moving toward a society with a lesser need for work, uh, but it seems doubtful to me that uh, any society will eliminate the need for labor and work from the human condition. So I kind of want to, I want to get there. That's that's where I want to end up in this conversation, because that to me is sort of, I think, the, the crux of this issue that we're dealing with. But I want to start out by first defining this thing that we call work. So how do you define work? Well, I think we should define work broadly as purposeful or productive activity. Um, I'm not particularly wrapped up in how we define work. I was more interested in thinking about what makes work meaningful and to that end, I had to say something in the direction of a workable definition of work. Um, so I settled on a broad definition of work as, as purposeful or productive activity. I would resist a definition of work that would define work as paid activity, uh, because there are many examples of activities that intuitively should count as work that are not paid, um, ranging from <clears throat> artistic works that are, are are done for their own sakes and that are not paid for by anybody, um, homework, housework, uh, work done by slaves, 
uh, commissioned work that unsatisfied customers refuse to pay for, subsistence farming. Um, there are just a lot of examples of activity that should count as work uh, that is not paid. Um, so I would resist such a narrow definition of work in favor of a broad definition. Uh, but in fact, work is an activity that is hard to define. It, it eludes clean conceptual analysis. And I think for that reason, it does scare some philosophers away. What then do you think work does for us as, as humans? Sort of on a broad scale, what is it beyond just mere necessity? What does it give us other than just the simple reproduction of our, of our daily lives? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the main ideas of meaningful work was that work can be a kind of linchpin for many different goods. Uh, fundamentally, it's a means to a paycheck or to benefits or to productive output. But uh, for the workers themselves, work is a locus for many intangible psychological goods. Uh, right? Work can be a source of um, the exercise or development of skills. It allows people to earn esteem for the exercise of their of, of their skills. Uh, work is a source of pride. It's a source of dignity and honor and self-respect. Um, work can be a source of identity and creative self-expression. Uh, work is a way of contributing uh, usefully to the world, uh, of, 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 of making one's life have meaning within the world. Uh, so work is a sort of locus of many different goods for a person, economic goods, moral goods, social and psychological goods. Uh, and for that reason, a person is not going to thrive in life unless they have work that is good or meaningful. And you so take a specifically Aristotelian approach to this, yes. right? And so, yes. I, you know, I want to talk about what Aristotle has to offer us in particular. And I think, you know, you sort of lay out that in a way, Aristotle was very skeptical of at least manual labor, right? And viewed the value that we can find in our lives, at least in terms of, of the more active life, right? The life of contemplation and political activity and so on. So what does Aristotle offer us and how do you sort of shift Aristotle's theory in order to think about meaningful work? Mm -hmm. Well, I think Aristotle was right that um, human flourishing requires activity, of one sort or another. He emphasized that um, you're going to thrive by possessing a plurality of goods, uh, ranging from virtues to pleasures, to knowledge, to citizenship in a well-ordered society. It, it's, not, it's not a reductionist conception of the human good, it's pluralistic. Uh, and one primary good in human flourishing is the development of your skills and capabilities. Uh, so I think he was right about that, but I do think that he was wrong about the role of manual labor in the good life. It's important to make a distinction that Aristotle did not uh, between skilled and unskilled manual labor, right? He thought that um, a well-ordered polity cannot have uh, citizens living the life of mechanics and shopkeepers that would be ignoble uh, and inimical to goodness. He says that in the politics. Um, <clears throat> so I think that he's wrong that that, that, that all manual labor is incompatible with human flourishing. Um, but it is true that um, labor that is, is tedious, repetitious, uh, mechanical, taxing, it does drain us. It drains our energies, our time, uh, what we have left over for, for leisure and for our own thriving. Uh, but <clears throat> what, what Aristotle seems to get wrong is that uh, some manual labor can in fact be 
uh, richly satisfying. Uh, it's it, it can be a component of of, of human flourishing. Um, the philosopher Matthew Crawford really brings that out in his book Shop Class as Soulcraft, uh, where he talks about uh, how the work of building and fixing, as we see in carpentry or motor motorcycle repair, um, that that can be a way of exercising skills. Uh, contributing to a community, earning respect and esteem, and a way of flourishing. So, um, yeah, in short, Aristotle was was correct about the importance of activity in human flourishing. But I think he was wrong that all manual work is 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 not part of a thriving life. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, I have a question that goes back to this issue of the post work vision. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but just. If the purpose, if if the value that we find in work is finding um, purposeful activity in it, and some kinds of labor like slavery, um, you have no choice, and therefore it's hard to find purpose. Although you perhaps you have a different view of how slave life was, isn't voluntary um, activity more purposeful in general than paid? Um, <clears throat> yeah, you know I think that there are many components of meaningful work. And autonomously chosen work uh, does speak to the meaningfulness of work and to um, you know the ability of work to help us to thrive. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to reduce meaningful work or good work to freely chosen work. Um, even if you find yourself working in a family business just as a course of the direction of your life, and you you didn't really have a moment where you chose this for yourself deliberately, reflectively, autonomously. Um, it can still have elements of meaning. Um, but yeah, you're right that um, autonomy is 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 an element of meaningful of meaningful work and of human flourishing. So beyond autonomy, I want to I want to get sort of to now some of the 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 more grittier details about exactly how you conceptualize meaningful work because you know I think you're right that work allows us to express our our capabilities it allows us to gain a kind of social recognition to build community so on and so forth but what I think you do really well in your book is you you reflect on really the question of meaning in life and that becomes a kind of foundation for thinking about meaningful work and even though that's you know a very bold question to tackle, I think you do it quite well, and you show that the question of meaningful work really requires us to get clear about answers to meaningful living more generally. And you know, you build in part from Susan Wolf's fitting fulfillment view of meaning in life, which sort of suggests that meaning in life is found where, as the slogan goes, subjective attraction meets objective attractiveness. Right? In other words, that our our deep subjective engagement in certain activities meets what we kind of collectively view as something like worthwhile pursuits, something aimed at a kind of social good, right? So I at least take it that your your view of meaningful work takes up a kind of this hybrid approach, right? So this sort of objective plus subjective conditions being met. What do you take to be the sort of core components of, of meaningful work? Sure. I mean, first of all, as you were indicating, uh, work has both subjective dimensions and, and objective dimensions. It's hard to deny that 
what I would find to be meaningful and fulfilling work might differ from you or from the next person. There's inevitably an element of subjectivity in meaningful work. Um, but I don't think that it stops there and in that it's, it's just up for individual preference and that's all that there is to say about the matter. Uh, because when, we're, when, when we really dig into the, the, the empirical and philosophical literature and we think about the reflections of everyday working people, we do find some, some recurring themes, some basic elements of meaningful work that are worth identifying and thinking about and, and um, you know, drawing attention to. Um, and those, um, those, 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 basic, those basic objective dimensions of meaningful work include, number one, the development of capabilities, uh, especially insofar as that meets with recognition and esteem from other people. Um, also, work can be meaningful in that it develops and reinforces virtues, uh, virtues such as honor and pride, dignity and self-respect. Uh, really, work attaches to a range of virtues, willingness to contribute, um, dependability, cooperativeness, and so forth. Um, and that's part of the um, Aristotelian um, influence, I think, on my on my thinking about meaningful work is that it's it's bound up with virtues and with the development of human capabilities. Uh, but even beyond that, <clears throat> um, one element of meaningful work is its is its purposefulness. Uh, even if work is not exercising some impressive skill, it can be purposeful. It, it can be meaningful insofar as it's purposeful, right? Insofar as you are doing something or building something for your community and your community needs that and values that, even if it's something as simple as creating soap in a soap factory, um, the purpose in that work does lend a meaningfulness to that work. And uh, there you have an element of meaningful work. And um, <clears throat> finally, I think that an element of meaningful work is its sort of its, its relational component. Uh, work can tie your life together uh, in a way that your work might reflect the skills that you've developed over a course of a lifetime. It might reflect your values, uh, your commitments, your identity. It might um, reflect your family. It might tie your narrative together, uh, tie you to a particular location that is meaningful you, meaningful for you. Um, so in, in, in that way, I think that there are at least four uh, elements of meaningful work that are worth appreciating, and that meaningful work is not a concept that we can reduce to a singular essence. Well, one of the issues that you have addressed is pride, honor, dignity, and work. And um, one of my concerns about the political moment that we're in in the entire industrialized world is the growing division between knowledge workers and blue-collar workers, the kind of um, the sense the blue-collar workers have that they are being denigrated, they do not have the dignity, they don't have the, the income, they don't have the autonomy. Um, and I wonder if you think, you mentioned, we mentioned Aristotle already, you know, his um, position on manual labor. So perhaps this is not at all new, but it seems like we, to me, that it's become more intense uh, part of the, the debate about meritocracy and college-educated uh, people versus non-college today. Do you see that dimension happening today? Um, <clears throat> to some extent, I can see that. Um, I mean, this, this question really brings me back to some of the insights that Crawford had in his book, uh, Shop Class's Soulcraft. He was really at pains to show that um, there are many blue-collar jobs that are infused with um, know-how, 
uh, with a kind of intelligence. Um, but I mean, there are ways that managers can can you know degrade workers even even when their work does and require knowledge and skill. It's it's um, I, I I think the issue is that. Um, if a worker is going to find uh, pride and satisfaction in their work, they do need a certain amount of leeway to com to, to complete their job um, rather than having somebody micromanage them as though they didn't have the knowledge and skill to do their job. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think it's important to affirm that uh, there is a lot of blue collar work that uh, that exercises knowledge and skill. Um, but there's there's also a lot of work that is is rife for oppression. And, you know, so, sort of on the flip side of that, um, there's plenty of what we would consider white collar work. And you actually point out in your book, um, I think you give the example of a Wall Street banker who uh, and a, whole, a host of other unethical professions sort of that you lay out, which I, I think is probably somewhat correct. And you sort of suggest, you know, um, your second criterion that work must support virtues, including self-respect, honor, dignity, pride, and so on and so forth. These kinds of jobs, actually, we might be able to say are not meaningful because, you know, they don't contribute to social value. You know, what is it about these professions more specifically that you think actively decrease the kind of meaning found in work? And I think in particular, what does that say about the objective dimension that you're trying to lay out here? Mm-hmm. Um... <clears throat> Yeah, I think Crawford had an important point that uh, there are some jobs in which people are essentially skimming off of the productive energies of others. Um, he thought that Wall Street fin th financiering was a good example. Um, to some extent, um, James, uh, being a university administrator also involves sort of you know, skimming the productive labors of other people and just doing some meta work of of trafficking and this surplus. I'm an agent of, of capitalist rationalization. Um, you know, Crawford thought that that was really kind of, you know, meaningless and just a sort of tool for oppressing other people. <laughs> um, now, even though administrative work can have its meaningful elements, um, yeah, there is. Um, there's, 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 there's not a lot of meaningfulness to be found when you're just, you know, taking what other people have done and doing some analysis with it in some such a way that you're not directly useful to the world, right? If you wanted to be useful and have meaningful work, you would be a teacher and not a financier or an administrator. I, I think there's a there's a there's a wonderful point in the book where. I can I can feel your frustration in your writing because there's a moment where you sort of say, you know, not all aspects of jobs that we might find meaningful are full of tasks that are deeply meaningful. And one example that you give is something like sitting in an academic meeting, mulling over data that will not help us teach better research better and there, there's there's almost a full paragraph that i can feel your your own experience with those kinds of tasks coming to the fore in your writing yeah when i was i had to think of examples of meaningless work and uh that can be challenging because work is characteristically purposeful and a lot of work has at least an element of meaningfulness in it um but as i thought about some examples of meaningless work um serving on university assessment committees came to mind Sure. Uh, because yeah. Yeah, people people waste a lot of uh, potential potentially productive hours uh, talking about assessment, which doesn't really impact the way that people teach or the way that people learn. Um, and that 
that's yeah, that's that's not to say that administrative work is entirely meaningless. Well, and what I suppose what I find really interesting about that example, and I think what's useful here to the broader discussion of meaningful work is that there, there, there is also this kind of separation between the job itself, which we might find extraordinarily purposeful, but then elements of tasks that are built within the job that we see as almost antithetical to the purpose or, uh, you know, inconsistent with those kinds of purposes. And so, you know, you talk very specifically almost about job level analysis of meaningful work. Well, yes, I think that jobs will often have elements of meaningfulness and elements of of, of meaninglessness in them. Uh, so being a teacher, for instance, is richly meaningful, generally speaking, but um, it can have it can have tasks that are that are repetitive and taxing. Um, certain forms of grading um, can can feel soul soul sucking. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I. I wouldn't say that about about all grading. You know, for instance, grading a paper, I think, is somewhat like engaging in conversation. Um, but there are elements of grading a large stack of papers where it's it's fairly repetitive that um, just doesn't feel particularly meaningful. But you know, I think it's kind of greedy to think that a person can just have a job that is entirely meaningful. Um, I think it's important to accept that um, a, a job is going to have elements of meaningfulness and purposefulness, as well as elements that are are not as engaging. One of the things that you um, say is important to work is the capacity, let's say the um, building and reflecting on personal relationships, that kind of relational aspect of work. Um, how do you reflect on the uh, expansion of work from home? in the context of COVID-19, do you think that that is a threat to the kind of relationship building that you think is important? Um, not necessarily. Um, people can build relationships with their coworkers, even when they're working remotely. Um, I mean, the relational element can be realized in many different ways. Um, a person might feel related to a community and they're, in, uh, they're happy to be contributing to that particular community. Um, they might feel related to a workplace or to a family um, and in different ways their, their work can bear that out. Um, since there are so many different ways in which our work can put us in relationship with other people, um, I think it's hard to make generalizations about working from home versus working in the office. Um, Yeah, so I, I would be inclined to not pass judgment on, on people who are working from home. But um, I mean, one thing that I was generally at pains to emphasize in the book is that I think that it's ethically right to structure work in a way that promotes worker well-being. So if people find that their overall well-being is increased by working from home, then that's something that an ethical company would support. My sort of my next question of where I want to go and talking specifically about what some of these key indicators of worker well-being are, you know, we've laid out the kind of objective criteria, but what does it look like on the sort of day to day level of the kinds of things that are consistent with with worker well-being? Mm -hmm. well, I think that there's a lot of empirical work on that question that would be worth looking into. Um, but what comes to mind, um, you know, thinking about that empirical work would be a kind of a list of, of several things to consider, um, ranging from giving, giving workers a fair amount of autonomy over the way in which they perform their work, um, 
structuring work in such a way that uh, people are not overly stressed or micromanaged in doing their work. Um, one thing that I noted in the book is that work has a great impact on our health, on both our physical health and our mental health, right? Work can either um, increase your physical and mental well-being um, or it can damage it, right? So there are some kinds of work that will uh, drive people to alcoholism. Uh, some kinds of work will uh, put a lot of damage on the body in terms of uh, your hips, your joints and so forth. Um, so it, it, it cuts both ways, right? For better or for worse, work has a great impact upon our health and well-being. Um, and that's something that, that, again, an ethical company would take into account in thinking about the structure of work. So, so this also then takes us in closer to the post-work direction that I, I promised we would eventually get to. You devote you know, sort of the second half of your book to the question about what does it actually look like for us to organize work effectively in a society if we're trying to sort of maximize meaningful work for as many people as we can. You call this kind of meaningful work eudaimonistically meaningful work, right? Sort of following the Aristotelian flourishing tradition. And you, con you contrast the kind of eudaimonistic work um, with work that might be socially useful or socially necessary even, or even carries with it a kind of extrinsic or external meaning in the sense of providing for others. But you say that eudaimonistically meaningful work requires that work, the work itself to contribute to the flourishing of the human being doing the work, not merely those extrinsic goods, right? And you, know, you even make it clear that you believe eudaimonistically meaningful work is unlikely to be available to everyone. Right, both now and also in a potentially sort of automated future. And you even talk specifically about Paul Gomberg's conception of contributive justice, where he argues we sort of have a duty to share in routine or undesirable work, even if it does provide us with a kind of extrinsic good of being able to provide for others. You also think that this perspective has its limitations. Yeah, I in 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 the later part of the book, I was thinking about um, problems of distributing meaningful work and about the fact that uh, meaningful work appears to be a limited good in some respects, and that's primarily because um, communities have a need for people to perform work that is not particularly meaningful, or that's or that support supports human flourishing, and and that just uh, comes from a sort of realistic appraisal of the world of work that. Um, in the world as we know it, um, there are there are many forms of work that are routine, uh, that are taxing, that are that are dangerous or dirty or disgusting, and I don't think that all of that work can be wished away uh, in thinking about um, a utopian society in which um, everyone has good work or work that fits them. Um, so in, in thinking about that question, I was somewhat torn between the realistic, um, the realistic, I don't know, observation that the world is not filled with completely meaningful work on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the potentially utopian vision of, of how things can improve and get better, uh, and how good they could potentially get, um, in a world that was more structured around worker well-being. And, uh, what I came to think is that there's a sort of unhappy moral problem wrapped up in occupations of unskilled labor. Um, and Gumberg's work was really interesting to think about. I, I think he has some insights about contributive justice and how um, just in the way that every person in a household would have a kind of 
obligation to contribute labor to the household. He thinks that in the broader society, um, people have an obligation to contribute and that if um, some work is, is not particularly fulfilling but necessary for social functioning, um, and if it's the case that anyone can in principle do that work, then in fact, everyone who is able-bodied or able-minded has a duty of contributive justice to perform some of that work. Um, uh, people, people might recoil from that as being kind of wild or utopian, but there's a sort of moral insight in that, that um, you have a duty to contribute your fair share, not only of the good work, but also of the bad work that is necessary to sustain societies. But yeah, I did argue later in the book that um, even though there's moral merit in Gumberg's idea and in the whole notion of contributive justice and of sharing routine labor, um, there are limitations of, of all of that because not all work is shareable or open to being rotated. Um, and in the end, I think that we're, we're, we're left with a sort of messy, unjust distribution of meaningful work. And there's no, there's no way of ultimately solving it, right? It's a sort of, I don't know, problem with the universe in part that, um, there's not, there's not an, there's not an excellent and neat fit in between, you know, people who are looking, uh, to make themselves useful and to flourish and to develop their abilities and contribute those to society and what the world has to offer. It's, uh, not not everyone is going to find meaningful work, even if we take pains to improve society, uh, to to allow more opportunity uh, for meaningful work. So, yeah, in the book, I was I was kind of wrestling with some problems that are probably unsolvable, frankly. Um, I, I was curious as to what you think about the possibility of a post work future. As I'm rather skeptical about that. I I think that uh, technology can ease our burdens, but it seems unlikely that um, we'll be arriving at an entirely post-work future. Communities have a need for the labor of human beings. Uh, one thing that I'm often drawn to think about is that um, you know, we, we need teachers and not robots uh, to teach the young minds, and we need dentists and not robots to fix our teeth, and the same goes for um, customer service people, right? I don't want to just talk to a computer when I have a problem. I need a person to hear my concerns and help to solve my problem. I, I need a lawyer and not a computer to help me argue on my behalf in court. And I want to see a doctor and not just talk to a machine. So as, as I see it, you know, the, the post-work society seems, seems somewhat um, like a strange idea to me. Sure. But what, do you, what do you think? Well, it's it's very interesting. The three of us may have three sort of different conceptions here, and maybe we can go one by one. And Jay, after I well, I, yeah, I, I'm probably the utopian in the group. Um, have always been much more bullish on the long term prospects for automation of all occupations. I recently published a piece on intelligent tutoring systems, arguing that a lot of the functions of teaching are amenable to automation, um, but. I've also been long influenced by Andre Gortz and his thinking on these things. And it relates to what you're just saying about the inequality of, um, and also by Walden too, uh, which I read when I was a teenager, um, where BF Skinner was trying to imagine how to more equitably distribute meaning and work and, and its relationship to pay and time. Um, but Andre Gortz had this conception that we should basically put all the meaningful work in a pot, eliminate all the bullshit jobs, and then distribute all the meaningful work um, equitably between people. And, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And his complement to that was the kind of uh, publicly financed Home Depots and maker shops where people could go and just 
make the stuff through pub, you know, publicly assisted uh, means uh, that they wouldn't otherwise, that they would have otherwise needed to go to a paid, uh, you know, nexus, a cash nexus for. So I'm, I think we do need to be practical about, you know, that we're not going to be there for a very long time and that the, the transition needs to address these issues that you've uh, brought up. But yeah, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't invest in the long-term prospects for any profession. <laughs> And per perhaps I'm a bit uh, I'm a bit less utopian than Jay is. The post work tradition, in some ways, is it's kind of a misnomer because a lot of the folks who talk in the post work tradition use the the term post work often to to think not just about a future in which work doesn't exist, but a future in which the emphasis on work as either necessary for securing a kind of social guaranteed social minimum or as an emphasis on finding meaning and purpose and value in life is significantly reduced, largely in contrast to just simply the, the Protestant work ethic that we, we have <laughs> grown to love, in at least in the United States and elsewhere around the world. So to that extent, I, I find a lot of sympathy in the post-work perspective, which is a kind of experimental vision of imagining alternatives where work is not at such a central component of our lives. But I also do think that it's really valuable to think about the ways in which we can make the work that will, I believe, continue to always happen much more meaningful, exactly as you say, much more autonomous. Um, and so I think there is perhaps an opportunity for us to, to find a kind, of, a kind of balance where work becomes less of a um, sort of stranglehold on our lives but still retains a lot of the deeply valuable insights that I think you're pointing out to, at least in terms of the kind of eudaimonistically meaningful work that allows us to flourish and participate with others, to develop our skills and capabilities, um, to, to find social esteem and social recognition. Um, but I'm also partial to arguments that suggest that those kinds of, those kinds of goods can also be found in things outside of work as well. And I think in some ways that's, that's a kind of experimental question that if we can build alternatives where work is not so central, then perhaps we can find that the, the exploration and, and uh, achievement of those kinds of virtues is, is also possible. So I'm sort of somewhere in the middle between the two of you, perhaps, or maybe Andrea, maybe you and I are much more closely aligned than, than we think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, after I published Meaningful Work, I, I went on to think um, quite a bit about the value of leisure. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I found, um, you know, that Bertrand Russell had an ideal of a four hour work day. And I actually think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you know, <clears throat> um, one thing that I, I tried to note even in meaningful work was that, um, it's not the case that the more work we have, the better off we are. It's not a good to be maximized. It is part of a balanced life. Um, if you're going to flourish, uh, your work should not be dominating your life. It should be one ingredient among many other goods in in a life. So in that respect, I can appreciate, um, I wouldn't call it a post-work society. That's sure. like a misnomer given what you've, what you've been describing. Um, it seems like you've been talking a bit about a leisure society. Uh, if the society has a sort of better balance between work and leisure, then um, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think you're right. I think it is frustrating that post-work 
either is viewed that way or that is the only language that we have uh, to, to describe the kind of imagining that we're, we're thinking about. But I think in particular, someone like Kathy Weeks, who adopts the language of post-work, but is very clear that it's not necessarily that we're trying to achieve a post-work society, but instead it is a kind of post-work politics where our ideological conditions are changed such that work is not sort of the dominant mechanism for finding purpose and meaning. And maybe maybe you and I need to workshop ideas for whatever position we're trying to represent here. And David Spencer, who we had on the podcast, um, his book is called Making Light Work. The slogan throughout is less work, but better work. And in many ways, that kind of captures the 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 basic thrust there. So since I often beat the UBI drum, uh, I often say I'm post, I'm, I'm anti wage slavery. I'm not anti work. I'm just, it's the wage slavery part. Sure. But you know, Andrea, I actually think the, the leisure question is really fascinating to me as well. And I think one of the things that's really important that you point out in your book is the relationship between how people work and how people experience their leisure that those who are actively engaged and creative in their working lives reproduce those kinds of activities in their leisure lives. And insofar as work is dull and repetitive, so too is their leisure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the result of um, what's, what, what some theorists of work call the formative thesis. Now, the idea there, which I, I think is correct, the idea is that work forms a person. Uh, so your work can make you more argumentative, for instance, maybe you're a lawyer and you're you're arguing quite a bit all day long. You become an argumentative person. Uh, when your work is soul destroying, well, your soul gets sucked away. I mean, when your work is challenging, then your mind becomes active. Um, there are many ways in which work uh, not only reflects our abilities but affects our abilities. So that's the formative thesis, and you you find that uh, reflected in the fact that. What we do in our leisure hours is often a reflection of what we're doing in our working life, um, and it's it's it, it speaks, I think, to the um, interrelationship of work and leisure in human flourishing. One of Gortz's theses was that the reason that we don't have um, fewer working hours today is that capitalism has commodified leisure and forced us to work in order to do the kinds of leisure we think we need to do, which I think is. Partly true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 Alec, you were mentioning um, Kathy Weeks, and I, I, I read her book a while ago. Um, I remember she was she was expending quite a bit of effort arguing for a six-hour workday. I, you know, personally, I find that to be fairly, fairly um, intuitively plausible. Right, uh, the, the the whole norm of an eight-hour workday that that we currently have ingrained in 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 our working life it's it's an historical norm. It's it's uh, not some rational Archimedean starting point for society. It's 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 contingent and and, and in terms of future movements, uh, future directions for for working life, I I most certainly welcome um, a reduction in working hours. Uh, I think that's all to the benefit of, of human flourishing and, and worker well-being, that we work a little less and enjoy life a little more. Uh, as I was saying, you know, the fact that meaningful work is a great good in life doesn't mean that we should be maximizing it, because um, work is still just one good among many other goods in life. I think one of the most interesting pieces of your work is your discussion of value pluralism. 
And you seem to have a bit of a tenuous relationship with the kind of value pluralism, right? On, on one hand, it sort of overlooks some of the serious harms done to people who lack meaningful work. But on the other hand, you know, that kind of value pluralism, I think, allows for your idea that not everybody can find meaningful work, can find meaning elsewhere in their lives. So uh, what do you take to be some of the limits of value pluralism? And um, But what do you still hold on to of the value pluralists account that you think is useful here? You know, I think that a value pluralist is right, that there are a plurality of activities and goods in life that can lend life meaning. Right? Many people justifiably find meaning and value in having a family or in um, contributing to their communities beyond their working lives. Um, some people find meaning in being part of a, relig a, a religious community um, or loyalty to an institution can provide meaning, um, travel, I mean, appreciating nature. Um, <clears throat> there are many sources of meaning in life. The value pluralist is correct about that. But um, what I saw in value pluralists, um, such as Will Kimlicka, for instance, uh, was an idea that um, because it is possible for an individual to thrive to a large extent without having meaningful work, as when a rich person just you know has a pretty good life without without having real work in their life, uh, because of this possibility, um, social institutions or governmental institutions should have a, a hands-off approach when it comes to uh, building a community around meaningful work. Um, I, my, my thought was that, you know, first of all, I'm not sure that a person can really thrive without meaningful work. Thriving is, is a notion that comes in degrees. So a person can indeed be fairly well off, um, without working, but they are going to lack certain goods that are really attached to work, uh, like the esteem and recognition and self-respect that come from contributing your skills and energies to a community and earning a paycheck. <laughs> that shows that your work is valued. There's a, there's a kind of character development that is bound up with work as well, that a rich person just is not going to achieve if, if they're laying about all day, experiencing a round of pleasures, but they lack work. Um, but even if we were to grant for the sake of argument that it is possible to achieve a good deal of thriving without having meaningful work, I don't think that that, that acknowledgement is a very good basis for social policy. Because for the foreseeable future, right, social life involves a lot of work. And uh, for that reason, work ought to be structured uh, around worker well-being rather than around purely economic values. Um, <clears throat> so that's what I would say to the value pluralist, I think, that um, there's a truth in what they're saying, but um, it is possible, it, it, it is important that um, well-structured societies provide opportunities for meaningful work. I've I've been influenced and attracted to Alistair McIntyre's argument in After Virtue, which to me reads as a way to understand value pluralism, historical situatedness of our concepts of character and virtue. But it, in its relationship to this question, it would seem to suggest that if we had uh, different cultural norms that um, defined as valuable different kinds of activities, um, that the kinds of dysfunctions that we see today. So for instance, you know, when men are unemployed, it's a lot more harmful for their health than when women are unemployed. And that's because of the gendered nature of cultural norms around meaning and work. Um, 
And so I, I hope, and as you mentioned, aristocrats, they, they never, you know, committed suicide because they didn't have meaningful work. They found things that they found meaningful in their lives. So I'm just wondering if, don't you think we could evolve to in a society, not again, not post work, but post paid work where people find those and create new value contexts for the, that provide the same kind of eudaimonistic goods. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And and I, I take it that the heart of that question is really that uh, when people are out of work um, or, or they lack what I would call meaningful work, they may be responding to the sort of cultural entrenchment, entrenchment of work in our lives. Um, that, 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 that people recognize that there is esteem in contributing to the social world through work. And so when they don't have the ability to do this, they they feel down on themselves. They lack that source of dignity because of the of the social valuation attached to contributing to the world through work. Um, to some extent, I can see a truth in that that uh, people are responding to the value of work in the in the current historical moment, and there might be a time in the future when we could break beyond that that way that the culture has bound up psychological goods like dignity and self-respect with work and people could achieve those goods in non-working activities. Um, in fact, that's another point that the value pluralist often makes is that um, goods like self-respect or self-esteem can be had by oh, be, be being an accomplished video gamer um, or being accomplished at sports or, or through other ways. And there's a truth in that, but um, you know, I, I still often come back to the point that, um, you know, work is a way of contributing your skills to communities. And in that very contribution, in the nature of things, there is, you know, the self-expression that is bound up with you as a worker in that contribution. And then uh, the, the, the good work then achieves um, a foundation for, for self-respect and self-esteem and the other psychological goods. I don't think it's merely a cultural valuation. There is something in working that expresses the person when work is when work is meaningful and not alienating. Um, and for that reason, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm hesitant to say that, well, you know, a person can just uh, achieve these psychological goods outside of work. And as a culture, we can just move beyond valuing people's people's contributions to communities through their work, even though it is possible to, um, you know, to, to thrive and to develop skills and so forth outside of work. Um, there's, there's still a lot that is attached to work itself as a way of contributing and making oneself useful to communities that, uh, that, that, that is bound up with, with human flourishing and with achieving a meaningful life. I mean, if you, if you're not really doing anything for the world and your work, uh, some existentialists might say, you know, your life is kind of superfluous. Why do you even exist? <laughs> so, um, you know, and maybe maybe this is why the definitional question, I think, is a really important one, because the definition of what work is, I think, really changes how we think about what can lay the foundation for building yourself and your skills and capabilities. Um, and I um, James Chamberlain has a has a book called undoing work, I believe. <laughs> I hope that I'm getting that right. And one, I, one of the, he adopts a kind of post-work position, maybe not in the full sort of 
fully luxury automated communism version of post work that I think is like the, the, the typical vision of what post work is. But in it, he one of the one of the primary um, ways that he expresses his um, sort of distaste for an obsession with work is through the lens of folks who have uh, disabilities or even elderly folks who can't participate in the workforce and yet can find meaning and value in other things through a kind of you know community creation, social contribution, and so on and so forth. And maybe that just what that requires is us sort of expanding our definition of what work means. And perhaps that's a part of your working definition of work, that volunteer work, care work, um, gardening, being a part of a social club, so on and so forth. Maybe that's consistent with, with your understanding of, of work. But what do you have to say about that perspective? Yeah, well, this, <clears throat> there's a lot in that point. Um, let, me, let me unpack this a little bit. Yeah, first of all, um, I do favor a broader definition of work and of meaningful work, where some activities that um, are on the cusp of uh, work and leisure uh, would 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 perhaps fall into the category of work and have the goods that are attached to work. So, I mean, for instance, if a rich person were to organize a, a charity ball, um, they are there and contributing to the world and doing something for some good with themselves. You know, their, their, their activity is social. Uh, it's somewhat productive. Uh, it expresses values. It, it might build and reflect virtues. So it has a lot of the qualities and goods that attach to meaningful work. And, you know, it, we, might, we might just toss that into the pile of, of non-paid work. Uh, organizing a charity ball. So in, in that respect, if a rich person is going to, you know, achieve the goods of meaningful work, they're doing something that approximates meaningful work. And it's, it's almost all the way there, even if it's not, you know, fully there, because it's, it's, it's on the cusp, and it's not paid or something. Uh, but <clears throat> um, you, you also brought up an important point about, about people with disabilities, for instance. Um, I mean, insofar as a disabled person can work, um, I see that their their flourishing and, and their personal well-being is improved and furthered uh, by the fact of their working. Um, because again, work has so many benefits attached to it, even beyond a paycheck and the reflection of value that is had in that paycheck. Um, there's, you know, there's also the intangible good of contributing to the community, of, of being within the community and interacting with other people and so forth. So um, yes, when a person um, can contribute to communities to the best of their abilities, that's good not only for the community, but also for the worker themselves. Um, but your point also brings to my mind that um, it is true that the value of a human life is not merely to be found uh, in the fact that the person is a worker. I, I take that as given as a, as a sort of basic ethical principle that human life has inherent or intrinsic value. And um, when I'm explaining this to my students, I will often say, well, that's that's given as a starting point that your life has uh, intrinsic worth, but it also has instrumental value insofar as you're going to do something with your life and contribute to the world, your, val your, your life will have value beyond itself. Uh, and so it's actually what Plato would call the highest kind of good, right? Plato in the Republic says that the highest kind of human good is one that has both inherent and instrumental value, like health. Um, health is a good in itself, it's pleasant, and it leads to longevity. 
so health is is a sort of high high human good. It's in the highest category of things that are valuable both in themselves and for their consequences, their utility as well as their their inherent value. And so, um, good work probably belongs in that category. Of course, Plato didn't say that, but I would put it in in Plato's highest category of human goods because. Yeah, through your work, your life will have value in itself, and it will have value for other people as well. It will be instrumentally valuable, and um, that's that's part of the uh, the good of work. Hmm. So, I want to we're, we're sort of getting to the end of our time here. So, I want to wrap up with a few a uh, few final questions. One is a, a more structural concern. Um, and at the end of your book, you know, you you sort of lay out. Um, that the the question of meaningful work is better described as a kind of ethical concern rather than a political concern. But you do also allow that there may be kinds of political and economic structural changes that could allow for greater degrees of, of meaningful work. Um, and two that you, you mentioned very briefly, but I would like to get uh, sort of a fuller picture of how you feel about these are a universal basic income, first of all, and workplace democracy. The idea behind both of them being at least universal basic income, providing people with a kind of guaranteed minimum that gives them greater degrees of bargaining power, the option of exit, so on and so forth. Um, and then workplace democracy as a structural change, not guaranteeing meaningful work, but as a kind of backdrop to allow for the kind of autonomous activity that might be required for meaningful work. So I want to get your a fuller perspective on those two structural changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even, even since writing the book, Meaningful Work, I've gone on to argue more in favor of universal basic income as a way of giving a greater degree of bargaining power and, and autonomy to working people. Um, I mean, there are natural objections that arise in response to proposals for a universal basic income that concern work, right? People wonder if, if everyone has an income that is sufficient for subsistence and that's not conditional upon work, how will people be motivated to work? And I, I believe that the argument of my book, Meaningful Work, helps to address that question by showing that um, there are really a plurality of goods that attach to work, even beyond the paycheck. Um, <clears throat> so yes, I'm I'm in favor of the universal basic income. Um, and as to the idea of workplace democracy, I also see that that would that would enhance the 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 flourishing and the autonomy of working people. Um, so that's an idea that I fully support as well. Now I I know that in your own work you were arguing in favor of something called economic democracy. Um, I imagine that's different from workplace democracy. And and what did you mean by that? Well, workplace democracy is a subcomponent of economic democracy. Economic democracy being a larger economic system that is as democratic um, as it can be through a sort of variety of, of institutional mechanisms. So one being the democratization of workplaces, another example being the democratization of, of investment. So the movement of private investment system to a public investment system. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, Philippe Van Puri argues that uh, the universal basic income is quite compatible with capitalism. Um, and you might remember in my book, I was um, 
I was hesitant to um, condemn capitalism as inimical to the flourishing of workers. And that's partly because I wanted to decouple um, the common association between the ideal of meaningful work and Marxism. I believe that to be a mistake quite thoroughly. Uh, in political philosophy in general, people will often associate the ideal of meaningful work uh, with the work of Karl Marx. Uh, but in fact, when a person takes a broader view of the history of the philosophy of work, they'll find that there are ideals of work as a human good um, in many different intellectual traditions and, and notable figures and thinkers quite well beyond Marx. So um, yeah, again, I, 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 I would really push back against any sort of, I don't know, close coupling of meaningful work and Marxism. I think it's important to recognize that um, even, even capitalism in some forms um, can be compatible with the flourishing of workers and with ideals of meaningful work. Sure. I mean, I, I think we probably have a, a, a fundamental disagreement about whether or not capitalism can realize uh, greater amounts of, of human flourishing and meaningful work and the kinds of structural conditions that lead to toilsome and degraded work, I think are uh, capitalist structures are, are relevant to that kind of work. Um, However, I do also want to say I, I agree with you to the extent that Marx is not our only uh, philosopher that we can look to to think about meaningful work. And in fact, in the anarchist tradition, for instance, you you mention in your book, I believe, Simone Weil as an example of someone who she herself was an anarchist, was an anti-capitalist, right, was a committed socialist, but at the same time found a kind of Marxist approach to be antith antithetical to her understanding of what a meaningful, uh, a meaningful working life would look like. Well, thank you so much again for, for talking with us. And I hope that we can continue to be in, in contact in the future. And um, before you go, are you working on any other projects right now beyond the meaningful work question? Uh, yes, I just completed a, a book manuscript on another topic on the nature of suffering. Um, that's under review right now with Oxford University Press, so we'll see about that. Um, but as, as you know, work is related with suffering in interesting ways. But um, yeah, the book certainly goes beyond uh, talking about work to talk about, um, uh, well, the idea that I propose in the book is that people have a responsibility to be aware of suffering around the globe. Mm. Um, I, I draw on Aristotle to some extent. I like his 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 ancient idea that there is a true potential of leisure, which is the time that it allows for the development and flourishing of the mind. Mm -hmm. um, if we were to reach the post-work society, in fact, I, I would suggest that people ought to use their greater leisure time in order to uh, spend more time in, in education and in, in growing in awareness uh, about global suffering so that um, all of that time can be can be put toward toward greater purposes of alleviating suffering around the globe because awareness is quite pivotal uh, in the possibility of change. Uh, yeah, so that's our next book project. It's it's about awareness of suffering. Certainly. Well, congratulations on yeah. on, on completing that. That's very exciting, and yeah, I very much look forward to reading that book when it comes out. Congratulations. Okay, great. Yes, uh, thanks for the conversation today. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.